0: Good evening, and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Marianne Petrie. I have an excellent guest on. I have Dr. William Burnett. He is a professor. He's an emeritus professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine. He has since retired. He has been a forensic psychiatrist who evaluates adults, children, and families involved in legal situations, both civil and criminal. Now, he has just published Parental Alienation, Science and Law. That was just published in 2020. And he's also worked on the five-factor model that was published in the Child and Adolescent Psychology magazine. His expertise includes pretrial competency and insanity evaluations, death penalty mitigation, general typing of defendants, child custody and visitation disputes, and allegations of child sexual abuse. Now, I welcome... Dr. William Burnett, to the show. He um, also, as I said, has been involved in forensic psychiatry in particularly effects of divorce, child custody disputes, parental alienation, child maltreatment, and genomics of violence. A current research interest is methodology for distinguishing parental alienation and parental estrangement, and I wholeheartedly welcome you to Slam the Gavel. Dr. Burnett, how are you?
1: I'm good. Marianne, thank you very much for your hospitality.
0: I'm glad to have you on. Uh, we have a lot to learn from you. Um, you have an amazing career. I know you're retired. Um, when did you retire?
1: Oh geez, uh, several years ago. It's actually about 10 years ago, so um, I, I'm still busy doing things. I, uh, <laughs> I write articles. Our book came out a couple of years ago Uh, I do a lot of presentations at conferences, uh, especially now that uh, conferences are starting up again after the pandemic. So I'm busy with these projects, uh, even being retired.
0: Mm -hmm. And you're still busy. (laughs) Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: Your job has not ended. Um, How long did it take you to write the uh, Parental Alienation Science and Law?
1: Well, um, my colleague and I, Demosthenes Lorandos, uh, had the idea uh, several years ago. And we created an outline and we contacted the chapter authors. And I think the whole project probably took about two and a half or three years. Because um, you, know, you have to give everybody a chance to, uh, to do their writing, to write their chapter. And then even then, uh, you have to get them all together and do editing. So, um, doing a, it's a pretty big book, so doing something like that usually takes about three years.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, where can this book be found if a parent wants to look at it, or an attorney wants to look at it?
1: Sure. It's, uh, the name is Parental Alienation, Science and Law. And it's uh, available on Amazon, if you just go to Amazon, books or Barnes and Noble, any of those big companies that sell books online, or the publisher itself is called Charles C. Thomas. So you, you can get it from the publisher, but it's it's pretty easy to get. Uh, it's a little bit technical and it's, so, it's mainly intended for uh, mental health professionals and legal professionals, attorneys and judges. But Parents who are really interested in this topic may may want to look at it. Um, I mean, especially some chapters, like the introductory chapter, is is gives a good overview. Um, and then uh, then there's a chapter on research. There's a chapter on uh, different organizations that that have endorsed or accepted this idea. There are some really interesting legal chapters uh, because sometimes people falsely say that parental alienation cannot be uh, introduced in court or it's not a legitimate topic for court. And um, my colleague, Dr. Lorando's, uh, did a research project in which he and his assistants identified uh, more than a thousand cases in the United States since 1985 in which parental alienation was accepted as a topic uh, for, that, for the court proceedings. And by um, cases, I'm, most of these are appellate cases, since mm-hmm. those are the ones that have a record, but a few of them are trial courts. But I mean, it is pretty impressive, more than 1,100 cases since 1985. So it's really misinformation to say that parental alienation is not an acceptable topic uh, to bring up in court.
0: In some cases that I've, uh, you know, parents have come to me with, sometimes the opposing attorney will just blurt out parental alienation, and then it seems like they run with that. The judge doesn't even um, try to decipher it and look into it, you know. It's like in medicine, they have the Hippocratic Oath. Why don't attorneys and judges have this Hippocratic Oath of do no harm? and 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 dig deep.
1: Well, you're absolutely right. People do throw around the label uh, sometimes, and they just say, oh, this is a case of parental alienation. But that's really not enough. You really, you really have to investigate it. And if you're in court, in, at least in my opinion, you, you really have to prove it. And you have to show uh, there are certain things present. Uh, in particular, you have to show that the child exhibits certain behaviors um, that, that are seen commonly in cases of parental alienation. But you have to go beyond that. You have to be able to show that the parent who's causing the alienation, you have to be able to demonstrate that that parent has actually engaged in alienating behaviors. In other words, you can't just say that, oh, the child doesn't want to go see parent B, so therefore, parent A must have brainwashed the child. That's, that's not an appropriate uh, way to go about it. You have, you have to show both sides of it. You have to show the, the behaviors of the child, and you have to show the activities of the alienating parent in order to, to uh, have a case for parental alienation.
0: Mm-hmm. And primarily, these attorneys should be looking for patterns to show and tell the judge that this has been a pattern for you know, visitation, orders were not observed things like that?
1: Sure. Uh, parental alienation is not a one-time event. It mm-hmm. it occurs over a period of time. And the, the first step is that the child, um, says, I don't want to go see the other parent. And I don't mean just once. I mean, that happens. You have to have that happen over and over again over a period of time. So, uh, and also these other symptoms that occur in the child, like, uh, This thing called the campaign of denigration has to happen over a period of time and certainly the alienating behaviors by the favored parent they have to happen over a period of time that you can't just have a one one day event uh, and make this uh, make this diagnosis
0: now how do we get this through to the judges the judges um i've been told well they don't care you know I've tried to talk to one, didn't want to talk to me. <laughs> How do you, you know, should, should you know, we just get this book, Parental Alienation, Science and Law, and give it to these judges and ask them to read it?
1: Um, you know, judges and attorneys and mental health people, that they, they all need to have more education regarding this topic and so, my colleagues and I have done a lot of work in, in trying to make that happen. And we, we publish books, we uh, uh, make presentations at meetings for judges and attorneys and psychiatrists and psychologists. We write articles for journals. So we, we really are working hard to educate all of those different professions. And it, 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 is, it is interesting what you just said, Buy the book. and give them the book. Actually, we we did a little bit of research on that, and uh, judges don't want a book. They they don't want anybody to give them a book, because they're just going to put it on their shelf and not look at it. What they what they seem to want is something that's much briefer, and so what we typically do is we give them chapter one, which is might be I guess twenty pages or something like that, and uh, that chapter one if. if if somebody wants chapter 1 contact me and i'll i'll send it to you for free and you can distribute chapter 1 the uh, the publisher has very graciously let us do that because chapter 1 gives a good overview and it's enough information to get to get the to get off the ground and then if the judge wants more information obviously there's there's lots of resources and the whole book you know chapter 1 is i guess a little bit of an advertisement to buy the whole book so uh, we, we do try in various ways to educate judges. Now, some judges already know about this. I mean, it's it's not unusual for a judge to be very familiar with this topic and to have cases. And here in Nashville, Tennessee, I, I was testifying a few years ago, and the judge who was an older man said, oh, now, Dr. Burnett, he says, I know more about parental alienation than you do because I've I've been a judge now for 35 or 40 years. And I've seen many, many cases of parental alienation. And you know he, w- he was doing this in a good natured way. Uh, and it, I think it's probably true that some judges who are paying attention uh, have seen many cases of parental alienation. Others haven't. I mean, I guess it could be that if you're new at the job, you might not have seen it, or if you might have ignored it. That's the, uh, that's the real problem is there may have been cases that the judge simply was oblivious to and didn't realize what was going
0: on. Mm-hmm. Also, do you think you know these judges are moving these cases too quickly, and they just want to get the this case over with to go on to the next one at eleven o'clock?
1: <laughs> Sometimes they do. Uh, that that's a problem in the court system. Uh, that that if you simply listen to. What people say superficially, you might uh, think that the the parent who's alienated, who's rejected, uh, brought it on himself. But you so usually you really have to look deeper and see whether whether that's what happened or whether the child has been alienated by the preferred or the favorite parent. Um, you know, there's criticism of the whole system, the whole uh, family court system, is as being overly uh, adversarial. And so there are proposals to to make it something other than adversarial, and particularly to emphasize uh, mediation. To, to you know, when moms and dads come in and they can't agree, to have a period of obligatory mediation to see if they can work it out without going into court. So that's you know that's a that's an important step if if that can happen, um, and, and and lots of judges. Uh, have endorsed that approach
0: with these high conflict personality or personality disorders it's almost like the target parent is dragged into the family court process and they don't know what to expect either it's highly adversarial it's um they, they just don't know what to expect that's going to come out of the opposing's mouth
1: Well, I think you're right. Uh, Some individuals are naturally, I guess you would say oppositional or argumentative, or they're very self-centered, they're egotistical to, to an extreme degree. And by that, I mean, they think that their way of thinking is the only way to go. And when it comes to children, that they think that their parenting is the only parenting that matters. Uh, these people might be very narcissistic and feel that their approach with the child is the only one that we should endorse. So th- those people aren't gonna change their mind. Uh, they're stuck. Those people are stuck being narcissistic. And I mean, talking, I'm talking about kind of extreme cases. I'm not talking about sort of mild situations. But in extreme cases or those or they're antisocial you know they they take advantage of other people and they don't tell the truth and they manipulate the children and they even manipulate the court system so you those people are present in everyday life and in, in in they get married to people and they get divorced and they, and then they create this kind of problem in the court system so I think everybody has to be aware of that and uh, and you know, you you have to take steps to avoid getting sucked into the um, the disputes that these people generate.
0: It seems like it's almost, you know, like in some of these cases that I've heard, uh, you you can't avoid it because they will issue an emergency petition, and you have to be there. <laughs> you like just get totally sucked into it. Whether you, how do you stop it?
1: <laughs> well, that's I mean, you're right. I, uh, a person can uh, seek an emergency injunction, or I guess sometimes they're called an order of protection, and you can do it unilaterally, just on your own, going to the courthouse and filling out some forms. Uh, but then for it to be made more permanent, there has to be a hearing, and the, in the hearing they invite both the person who's filing the petition and the person who the petition is against. So. That's a real pain in the neck for all that to happen. But if 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 it is against a parent, you really need to show up, and, and you 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 should try to prove. Uh, if I mean, if if it's wrong, if if there's information in the petition that's uh, incorrect, you need to uh, find some way to try to prove that it's incorrect. Uh, and you might have to bring a witness to help you, but you know, um, I. People are going to do that. I mean, people who are determined to undermine the other parent are going to take steps like that, Um, which is sad because it just creates even more controversy and it creates even more difficulty for the child Mm -hmm. who's being fought over in that way.
0: There are parents that will coach their children to talk to the judge and even get them to lie about the other parent when you were working in in that field when before you retired was that easy to decipher
1: well judges sometimes do hear young children and maybe not necessarily in court but sometimes in their in chambers or in their own office uh, but more often this comes up in evaluations that mental health people do uh, child custody evaluations in which children come in and say things uh, that the other parent has told them to say. And, you know, you, you try to figure it out. For instance, you know, you, you, you interview the parents and suppose parent A makes certain allegations against parent B, you know, one, two, three, whatever, allegations. And then a week later, you interview the child And the child says exactly the same thing, one, two, three. Well, obviously, you should be a little bit suspicious that the child is simply quoting the parent. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Some children are not very good at doing this, and (laughs) the children are are simply honest. In other words, I mean, I've had this happen where you ask the child, uh, gee, you know, where did, how do you know that? Or where did you hear that? And the child will say, oh, mommy mommy told me that. And in fact, mommy told me to tell you that. And in in one case, I had, there were three children, and each child made a different allegation that the the mother had previously made. And I asked the children, and I interviewed them one at a time, and, and they simply told me the truth. They said, oh, last night we were at home, and mommy took each of us into a room, by ourselves, and she told us about coming here today and what to say. And then the next child told me the same thing, and the next child told me the same thing. So I mean, sometimes it sometimes it's it's pretty obvious mm-hmm. that the parent has been coaching the children. But you know, you, you have to investigate and and try to figure out um, wh- whether the child is talking about his own experience or whether he's simply repeating something that was told to him.
0: Mm-hmm. You know I've also read where um, this parental alienation causes mental illness in these children.
1: well, in extreme cases in severe cases, I think it's a mental disorder, and for instance, uh one of the features of parental alienation is uh, what's called lack of ambivalence, or another way to say that is splitting. And what I mean by that is the child perceives one parent as totally good and the other parent as totally evil. And children experience that in their own mind. This is a mental process in the child. That's not coached. Nobody tells them. The mother doesn't say it. You know, I'm I'm just using the mother as an example, since it could be either parent. The alienating parent doesn't say, "I'm totally good and your other parent is totally bad." The child comes to that conclusion on his own, because it's confusing to have uh, ambivalence or mixed feelings when your mom and dad are fighting with each other. You have to you you have to get out of the middle and you have to take a side. So some children. They say, uh, you know, literally, they say, oh, my mother is my angel, my father is my devil. You know, that one is totally good and the other is totally bad. Well, if you do that persistently, that child has a mental condition that, that's abnormal. It is abnormal for a child to, take, to, to have that idea. And they, they convey it in different ways. Uh, here, let me give you a quick example that some children, lots of children like to draw pictures and they like to make up stories. And so a child who says daddy is totally bad has extremely uh, angry and violent fantasies about dad. And we, ha- we have one situation where the, the little girl is holding a sword in her hand and there's blood dripping from the sword. And then in the next picture, there's her father and his head is cut off. In other words, this little girl literally is having this fantasy of cutting off and killing, cutting off her father's head and killing him. Well, that's not normal. That is an abnormal mental state for a 10 year old girl to have. And so when we say that some of these children have a mental condition or a mental disorder, we really mean that they have it's, it's, I guess you could say it's almost like a delusion. In other words, they have a false belief that one parent is so evil that they should be killed. That You know, there's no way to think about that as simply, oh, that's just, a, you know, that's just a, a child having a funny idea. I mean, that is an abnormal thought for a mm-hmm. child to, not just to have a thought, but to actually put this in the form of a picture. And draw detailed pictures to this effect, so anyway that, that's why I think that's, that that in, in more severe cases, this constitutes a mental disorder.
0: you know through time, if a child psychologist who actually knows what they're doing, they would be able to work with this child and bring this child to some type of reality
1: yes and uh, you have to have a series of steps, but if a child is being indoctrinated or brainwashed by parent A to think that parent B is horrible and should be executed, that is a very, very serious state. That's a, in, in terms of parental alienation, that would be called severe parental alienation. <laughs> so the, the first step is is the child is being uh, subjected to child abuse. In other words, it's child psychological abuse. To indoctrinate a child to have that kind of idea. And uh, the first step is to remove the child from that home. There, there, you know, there's any other way to do it. If you leave the child in the home of parent A, who's doing the indoctrination, the, the child is going to keep having those ideas. So the first step is for the, and the court has to do this almost always. The court has to take this step of, of removing the child from the home. That is abusing the child through child psychological abuse. So then the next question is, well, where should the child go? And frequently, the child should simply go to the, the other parent, the parent who, the, the uh, parent B, the parent who is the target of the alienating behaviors. Or if that's not possible, sometimes the child uh, has to go to some kind of neutral place, you know, at the home of a relative or a grandparent. An uncle. I had one where the child went to live with an uncle for a while and, and had an uncle, and it all worked out. So, um, in terms of, yeah, you asked me about intervention. Well, th- those are the steps that you have to remove the child from one home and, and protect the child from from the abuse. And then, you, you know, you do have to do some counseling. In other words, usually you have to have meetings with the child and the rejected parent together. in in a form of family therapy. And also you have to do counseling or really coaching for the alienating parent. In other words, if if the child has been removed from parent A, well, you need to have a coach or somebody to sit down with parent A and discuss what happened and, and help that parent see that what they've been doing is harmful to the child and help that parent change whatever he or she has been doing. So there are treatment interventions even in severe cases. So that's hopeful that in Mm -hmm. many cases you can work with the child and the parents and turn it around.
0: You know, what happens when you have that high conflict personality that doesn't see any fault in their actions and it's not me, it's all you and uh, you can't get them into counseling.
1: So um, the court has to figure this out. The, the first step as I've said is the court should remove the child from parent a and ordinarily the child goes with parent b and there's a period of time usually the the court might give them ninety days to get their act together and during that time parent a I keep calling it parent a but that's the alien eighteen parent uh, has coaching or counseling and hopefully that they understand and and change what they're doing. But you're right. In some cases, the parent is so stuck. Uh, These are people usually with severe personality disorders. They're so stuck in their way of thinking that they they don't change. They simply say, oh, everybody's wrong. The court's wrong, the other parent's wrong, everybody's wrong. (laughs) So they go back to court after 90 days and and the coach uh, gives a report. And if the parent a has not made any progress at all, well, the parent A does not get to see the child. Mm-hmm. If the parent A has made some progress, the, the court might allow parent A to see the child perhaps uh, monitored uh, by somebody who's, who can make sure that things go in a good way. But occasionally that parent says, I, I'm not going to change anything, I have no interest in changing anything. And the judge will just say, well, in that case, uh, you won't be seeing your child. If, if you want to, if you come back, you know, if you change your mind and you make some changes, you know, have your attorney set up a time and we'll review it again. But sometimes the, the original parent A or the alienating parent simply falls out of the life of the child, which is sad because that's not the goal, the, the goal, in these cases is, is for the child to have two parents and to have a good relationship with both parents. But occasionally the alienating parent is so stuck that he or she is willing to to lose and give up on the relationship with the child.
0: Yes, and that's very sad for the child. Uh, this just creates, I think, more problems for the child. Um. It, it just uh, these judges. I don't know. It's like a lot of parents tell me, "Well, the judges aren't enforcing, you know, the visitation orders, or they're not, you know, the parent was held in contempt, but the judge isn't doing anything about it. Just a slap on the wrists." And um, this parental alienation is able to infiltrate the the within the in the case. Um, and sometimes, you know, it, it does take time to alienate the child from the other parent, but that is not estrangement.
1: Well, everybody has some responsibility here. Obviously, the mom and dad have a responsibility to be good uh, parents, but uh, therapists have a responsibility to, to recognize this when it's early that when it's only just starting, when people are just splitting up um, and they, they're, they're seeing a therapist or a psychologist that the, sometimes the psychologist can identify what's going on when the case is mild. In mild, there's some alienating behaviors happening, but they're not intense and they're not persistent and the child says, oh, I don't wanna go see daddy, for example, but the child goes anyway and and it's fine that once once the child gets there, everything's fine. So those cases are mild and therapists have a responsibility to identify those and intervene. And so do judges and so do attorneys. But if it progresses, it's much, much harder uh, to treat. And it really falls more in more severe cases. It really falls more to the judges because they have to identify these cases and take action. And uh, you're right, as we talked about earlier, uh, judges need education. Um, they and uh, be, because in really severe cases, it, it has to be a judicial act to remove the child from one home and put the child in a safe home. Mm-hmm.
0: In my travels, I found that a lot of these child psychologists don't even consider or think about parental alienation that could be going on. I mean, it's right in front of their face, but perhaps they're not educated in it. And that's why I think we need the first chapter to start mailing out to child psychologists that are not aware of this or. Understand it.
1: I think that's a good start. Um, I know, Marianne, you you have an, an, lots of listeners. Maybe what I should do is send you Chapter One, <laughs> and then if people uh, know how to get in touch with you, you're you're welcome to distribute it uh, to your listeners. But that's a good start. I mean, it's it's not. Uh, i mean it's obviously only an, kind of an overview it's kind of it's an introduction but we, we need to get the word out to uh to professionals to courts to to, to the general public
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know shows like your own is, is our, this is one step of of the process of educating the general public and, as well as other people so it's a big project to get the word out about this this problem
0: well, with the five-factor model, which is, you know, absolutely huge because it's helped identify parental alienation in over 1,100 cases, um, why aren't the judges getting it even after that, after all that work you did?
1: <laughs> oh, we, we really need to, um, to educate everybody about the FFM the five-factor model. We mentioned that book earlier called uh, Parental Alienation Science and Law. And and that book is organized around the five-factor model. In other words, different chapters uh, address different parts of the FFM. And we've also published it, uh, we published it in a journal for family therapy that that happens to be in Ireland. So I think that reached people in Europe. Uh, There are some people in Poland who translated that into Polish, for instance. And this recently, the five-factor model was published in another journal in the United States called the Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, which is an important journal for child psychiatrists. So let me let me actually tell you what it is. So we've been talking about the five-factor model. Let me run through the five factors. And we've alluded to some of this a few minutes ago. So the first factor is the child says, I don't want to go see the other parent. In other words, the child is manifesting contact refusal. Contact refusal is a general resistance, not just to have contact, but to, to, resistance to have a relationship with the other parent. And, it, and like I said, in mild cases, the child says, I don't want to go see daddy, for example. But the child goes, and, and he's fine. That They get along, and, and everything's fine. In moderate cases, the child says, I don't want to go see Daddy. And the child goes, but it's difficult, is oppositional uh, during, that, during the parenting time. And in severe cases, the child says, I don't want to go see Daddy, and doesn't go. And that parent, the second parent, hasn't seen the child for months or maybe even years. So that's, that's just factor one. That the child says, I don't want to concede the other parent. Factor two is interesting because factor two is that in the past, the child had a good relationship with that parent. So almost always it's possible to show that before the divorce, uh, the, that parent who's now rejected had a perfectly good, healthy, enjoyable relationship with the children. Almost always. It, in fact, usually everybody agrees with that, that the uh, the alienating parent, the alienated parent, they, they agree that back in a few years ago, everything was fine. The third factor is the lack of abuse on the part of the alienated parent. In other words, if the child says, I don't want to go see daddy, you can show that daddy did not do anything to, to deserve that rejection. In other words, that daddy did not abuse or neglect, or there was not seriously deficient parenting on his part, um, and and so you because if there was if if that parent if the rejected parent was abusive, then it's probably not alienation; it's probably estrangement, mm-hmm. and the difference being that alienation is when the child rejects a parent without. A good reason and estrangement is when the child rejects a parent for a good reason so those are the first three of these five factors the fourth factor is the presence of alienating behaviors in other words you have to be able to show that the favored parent is in fact manifesting some of these alienating behaviors and there's a list there's a kind of a standard list of 17 behaviors you know one of them is you simply refuse to let the child go see the other parent another one is you you convey that the other parent is dangerous is you you make the child falsely believe that the other parent is dangerous to the child or uh, there are other things you can do for instance uh, don't call the other parent mommy or daddy but called the other parent by their first name. You know, there, there there are several of these alienating behaviors that you have to be able to identify in order to make this diagnosis. And then the fifth is there are certain behaviors in the child. And these have been known for almost 30 years. And uh, we mentioned some of them. One of, one of them is the campaign of denigration, where the child repeatedly criticizes or finds fault with the rejected parent. I mean, almost over and over and over again, like a repeating record. Or the other one I mentioned a few minutes ago is this splitting where the child says, one parent is totally good and the other parent is totally bad. So those are, uh, another one is called, uh, where the child says things that the, is repeating the scenarios that the favorite parent has said, in other words, The child is simply parroting things that the favorite parent has said. So I should say that these five factors relate in one way or another to the three parties. In other words, there are certain parts relate to the alienating parent, that's factor four. There are certain parts that relate to the rejected parent, for instance, factor two and factor three. And there are certain things that relate specifically to the child, for instance, factor one and factor five. So all, everybody in the family uh, it, it is addressed in one way or another by these five factors. And I need to say one more thing about the five factors, which is it's not as though we invented something new. Uh, the people, my, my colleague, whose name is Amy Baker, and I have written about this uh, perhaps more than other people. And uh, it's not as though Dr. Baker and I invented something new. All five of these factors have been around since the 1980s. But what we did is we, we simply kind of pulled them together into a list, one, two, three, four, five, and, mm-hmm. and, and assembled them so that when uh, psychologists or social workers are doing an evaluation, they can simply go down the list and and then you know each factor some of them have subdivisions you know like factor four has these 17 alienating behaviors and factor five have these eight uh, behavioral signs of alienation so uh, i I just want to emphasize that when we say the ffm we're, we're not saying that we We're not claiming that we've invented a whole new thing. We simply are putting together the components that have been known since the 1980s. I'll say another interesting thing about this, which is, you know, five factors, that's a fairly simple way to think about this. I I guess I should mention that even, that this has exceptions that are kind of good to know about for instance i said that factor two is a previous good relationship with the parent who's now rejected well there's actually an exception to that because suppose the following suppose it's the mother who's the alien 18 parent and suppose since the child's birth she has taken possession of the child and has refused to let the father have an involvement with the child you know she refused to let the father feed the child, hold the child or put the child to bed in other words the ch- the father never had an opportunity to form a good relationship with the with the baby or now the child and so that could be a case of parental alienation even though the even though the father uh, never had a good relationship but should have had So that's an exception. And there's also an exception to factor three. Factor three was lack of history of abuse. Well, occasionally there is a history of abuse, of domestic violence, say in the past. And so it, it might've been years ago, everybody got over it, everybody got along, but now that they're getting divorced, the mother might bring up things that the father did five or six or 10 years ago. In other words, and she keeps reminding the child of things that happened years ago. So uh, there that might be an example where there is a history of domestic violence, but, even, mm-hmm. but now that's not what's causing the problem. Now the alienating behaviors and parental alienation is what's causing the problem. Mm-hmm. So in, anyway, I think that five factor model is a good way to go. It's a good tool for um, evaluators to use both Uh, clinicians, and forensic evaluators. And it's also a good tool for courts to use in trying to sort this out.
0: Now, it has been also pointed out to me that when one party claims domestic violence, then the other party claims parental alienation. And um, then they remove the child from the mother. And they're saying, don't even talk about parental alienation because that's causing the mother to lose custody.
1: Well, that's a problem. And, uh, you know, I I think it's good that you brought that up. So the idea is that there might be a father who's abusive, and the mother says, oh, the child doesn't want to go see you, the, the dad. And the dad says, oh, it's because you're alienating the child It's not anything that I did, so that I, I, you know, I think that could happen in some cases, but but that's that's not a reason to to not allow parental alienation to come up. In other words, let let me give you what I think is kind of the bottom line to this: that both domestic violence and parental alienation are real issues, and a, a way to look at it is domestic violence is real; it damages thousands and thousands of families, but. Sometimes there are false claims, there are false allegations of domestic violence. And parental alienation is real. It damages thousands of families and it's real, but sometimes there are false allegations of parental alienation. So both of those things need to be recognized. And of course, if there are claims and counterclaims, you know, the whole thing needs to be investigated carefully to try to figure out what's actually going on. But the solution is not to say, oh, let's ignore parental alienation. You, you, you have to recognize both ends of this. And, and you know rather than get into a big argument about it, I, I think we should put our heads together and try to figure out how to, how to sort it out. How, you know, how, how can we evaluate families to figure out, is it mainly domestic violence? Is it mainly parental alienation? Is it possible that both things have happened? These are complicated situations and we need to develop good ways to tell the difference.
0: It seems that um, the recent trend is that a mother will claim domestic violence and the other party will then jump on the bandwagon of using parental alienation to get the kids away from that parent. So a lot of um, women are afraid to even bring up domestic violence because they're afraid of having their kids taken away based on parental alienation.
1: You know, in any legal situation, you have to do more than just bring something up. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you have to have evidence. You have to have examples. You you have to sometimes have witnesses or paperwork. And that's true of both ends of that. In other words, you you can't just go to court and say, oh, domestic violence, uh this and this happened. You have to have some kind of evidence. And the same is true of parental alienation. You can't just go to court and say, Oh, my other my former spouse is alienating the children. You have to have evidence. Mm-hmm. And so I realize that this puts a burden on courts because courts have to figure it out. Uh but you know, they do it that, that happens every day. That's what courts are all about, is to try to figure out the underlying truth. You know, somebody goes to court. the, the person's accused of, of burglary. You know Well, you can't just go and say, "Oh, that guy committed burglary. you have to prove it." Mm-hmm. And courts every day, that's what courts do is they try to figure out the underlying truth when people make competing allegations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this whole thing about domestic violence versus parental elimination is just like, that's that's like everything else in life, is you have to search for the underlying truth to find out what's really happening.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, with um, estrangement, you know, I always thought um, estrangement happened when the child was older, like 18, 21, or they found fault with the parent for something and they don't speak to the parent for a couple of years.
1: Yeah, estrangement is typically used for adults. If you if you read articles or uh, and comments, uh, estrangement is is kind of the traditional way, it, is it refers to an adult who no longer is involved with his or her family, or his or her parents. And so, uh, the other issue is that if you just look it up in the dictionary, uh, alienation and estrangement seem to mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. But in this field, in the the field of alienation, uh, these words have taken on different meanings. And there's there are specific articles that were published in which the the words were defined, and most people have adopted the distinction that I mentioned earlier, in other words, I think it's good to have this distinction. And most people now use alienation to mean rejection without a good reason, and estrangement to mean rejection because of a good reason. And these are somewhat arbitrary distinctions, but almost everybody uses that now when they're talking about uh contact refusal. In other words, contact refusal is a general term, and under that comes alienation and estrangement and other things. I mean, there are other possible causes of contact refusal. So um, it is true that this literature uh, that has been published in journals now make that distinction, which people do have to understand that if they're gonna uh, read in this literature, the distinction between alienation and estrangement.
0: Mm. I won't keep you much longer. What do you think, A good response would be when a parent hears, oh, they'll come back when they're they're 18. Don't worry about this. They even say in the case of alienation, don't worry, they'll come back at the age of 18. I have heard they might not come back for 40 years.
1: You know, there's lots and lots of ways that this plays out. And I don't know exactly how to predict in any individual family, but there are, there I, I, I'll, I'll run down the possible scenarios. Well, one is they don't come back ever, is, is they, they get alienated, say, from their dad or their mom, and they grow up and they, and they remain alienated and they never make any effort to get back to that person. So okay, sometimes that does happen. It continues forever. Secondly, there's a fairly common uh, way it plays out, is when the child... Uh, Becomes an adult and, and moves out of the house where the alienation, the alienating behaviors have been happening. And for instance, they go away to college, or they go they, you know they go out, they enlist in the army, you know they, they get away from the influence of that parent. And then when they go away to college, they meet people. For instance, they 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 meet a girlfriend, and the girlfriend says, "Hey, what about your dad? You never mentioned your dad." or not just a girlfriend, just a friend, a roommate, will say something like that. And and, the, and something will pop into their mind and to say, well, I don't know, I, maybe something didn't, maybe my dad is okay. I mean, I've been told lots of negative things about dad, but gee, maybe I should check with him. So they check with them. And, and, and so sometimes adult children do initiate contact back with the parent or Um, Another scenario that I heard is the alienating parents tend to be very controlling. And that's the whole thing that has happened over years is coercive control. And so in one case, a boy went away to college and his father, who was the alienating parent, wanted him to major in a certain thing. I think he wanted him to become a lawyer or something. And the kid didn't want to, The the kid wanted to major in something else like biology. And the, and the father says, well, I don't want, I don't want you to do that. If, if you want me to pay for your college, you have to do what I say. And the child said, well, I'm not going to. And, and so the child went to work and he worked part time. and He made money to try to pay for his college, but eventually he, he ran out of money. And so what did he do? He called up his mother. You know? mm-hmm. His mother was delighted to hear from him, even though the, the reason he was calling up was a little bit self-serving. It mm-hmm. was, he said, mom, uh, I, I wanna stay in college and can you help me? And she said, of course, I'll help you. And they got back together again. <laughs> so there are, there are many different things that happen, but I, I do think it's fairly common that once the child is out of the household, the child is free to think about uh, the rejected parent. And so that there's a lesson to that, which is rejected parents should do what they can to stay in touch. <laughs> in other words, send a Christmas card, send a birthday card, Maybe send a very small present, just kind of as a token, that, to indicate that I'm still thinking about you. Uh, if there are other relatives who are in touch, send little messages to to communicate to the child that you're still thinking about them. And so that's sort of an invitation for the child to come back and at least get in touch and say hi. So there is some hope, there's some hope. Uh, it doesn't always happen sometimes it never gets resolved but there is some hope that in some of these cases uh, they do reunite with each other
0: Mm -hmm. well i'm this was excellent i don't want to suck up your whole morning (laughs) i thank you for coming on the show
1: okay marianne well thank you for uh inviting me and it was a, a good conversation
0: okay don't jump off slam the gavels a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms that in turn perpetuate parental alienation i'm your host marion Petrie, author of dismantling family court corruption why taking the kids was not enough and cry out for justice poems of truth please join us again in the future with other guests thank you dr burnett
1: okay have a good day
0: you too